Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, spine number 10, The Hitcher from 1986. We've got car explosions, we've got finger food, we've got Schrodinger's bullets. Jacob? Yes. Because I cut off his legs and his arms and his head. And I'm going to do the same to you. Please get out of my car. Heading west on the long, lonely highway, only his dreams for company, until... My mother told me never to do this. Before many miles, he'll wish he'd taken his mom's advice. When Jim Halsey let the hitcher into his car, he opened the doors of hell. What do you want? I want you to stop me. Once you've met the hitcher, you'll never pick up another. My wallet's in my pocket. Shut up! We know how to do it. Jesus! Why are you doing this to me? You're a smart kid. Figure it out. I didn't do it. I didn't do any of it. I'm not a killer. This morning, this guy tried to kill me. He's been following me ever since.
Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and with me as always is Cody Bouchard. Yes, sir. And, and <laughs> Martin DJ Thick Ropes Carlson. That's oh. me. Yeah, was that? Did you just haul? I did. I should have my... <laughs> we need a rap air horn. <laughs> just like lay off so that, yeah and when we do dj thick ropes dj thick ropes so mattress like, king of austin martin carlson coming at you live i yeah. wonder what dj thick ropes is uh mixtapes would sound like it's just uh it's a whole lot of stevie wonder um what it's dj wonder fuck jams <laughs> just fuck jams. Some, some kenny g all day Oh, Some man. take your mom to the mattress, Kenny G. A lot of like Lost Boys, sexy sax guy type stuff. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> DJ Thick Ropes, Fluid Gen. The Batman Forever soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> fluid Sexuality and Seal. Just the uh, the soundtrack to Evita on a loop. So, uh, this week we have 19. <laughs> DJ Thick Ropes is bringing you 1986's The Hitcher. And uh, Cody, this was your pick. Yes, sir. Why? Well, actually, Jacob, this is a this is a secret handshake between you and I. You introduced me to this film. Wait, really? Yeah, I the first time I ever saw this was on the side of uh, a a certain movie store in Austin. When Vulcan Video. To, yep, when yep. we used to do uh, taps and tapes night. Oh, man. Oh, that's right. We did do this for Halloween two years ago. We did like that triple feature, which was like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween 3, and then The Hitcher. Oh, very nice. All on the side of the building. It didn't particularly go well because like the DVDs we used were shitty, and it was the thing that actually taught me that it was like, oh, maybe we should use a different media. That's how VHS tapes outside were kind of born. Um, I mean, if, right. if I recall, the Hitcher didn't have any issues. The Hitcher looked great. It was uh, specifically the Texas Chainsaw DVD that we used just totally fucked up. And Halloween 3 did okay, but I believe that's because I brought my personal Blu-ray from home. Was that was the season out. of the witch one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just because it was cursed by a witch. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, just it, bad Halloween awesome. masks. I love that movie so much. But yeah, we did watch the Hitcher together for the first time on the side of a building. Yep. I was drunk as shit. I believe you walked to Taco Bell. I sure did. I sure did. And you brought burritos and we watched the majority of it. And that's right because we we were drinking keg beer the whole time. Yep. And you kept staring at it just being like, this movie's fucking amazing. Because it is. I've never seen it. I was just speaking universal truths at that point. So you had never seen it before that. You had never seen it on VHS or cable. Never seen it, never heard of it. Wow. Because this was, at least for me growing up, an HBO staple like i had seen it, this late night like 10 11 o'clock um you having know, seen it now that makes a lot of sense yeah well it was made by hbo films correct mm-hmm. it was financed by them originally and then it went directly to cable well not directly to cable it played in theaters did not great but like and then played on hbo and had a big home video life so, but Martin, how did you see it for the first time? Um, it is a secret handshake film for my brother and myself. Um, introduced, he had seen it before. He's seven years older than me. Introduced it to me when I was probably 11 or 12. Um, this era when we were all of a sudden friends again. Um, when he had gone, sure. off, he had gone off to college and when he'd come back, we just watch everything. And he said, I always like this movie. And we also just both like Rucker Howard movies. They both loved 
Blind Fury. We both loved Blade Runner. So this was this other film with him in it. And uh, I remember just I I remember just from being you know preteen seeing this movie and just thinking it's one of the coolest things ever. And watching it again with you guys, I can say it honestly, it's still it's spectacular. I, it just like I was sitting there the whole time and. We thought before it's a little bit, maybe a little bit too long, but maybe like 15, 20 minutes. But it's just, man, Robert Harmon's a good fucking director. It looks great. Like that Blu-ray you have is beautiful. Yeah, because I got the German import yeah. version that has like an actual 1080p transfer. And I know, I know we were talking about this terrific. the night that we watched it. Isn't the uh, cinematographer the same cinematographer as... Um, Fury Road? Yeah. Yeah. John Seal. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, he's a big reason for why the movie looks so great and we'll kind of get into that a little right, later right. but like what part of this i mean drunk and eating taco bell in a parking lot usually isn't the uh, most ideal way to experience a movie for the first time so what I, about i dare it? you to defend that no it's well to really get everything from the movie <laughs> right I mean, he's not wrong, though, because, like, if I could just stand in a parking lot and eat Taco Bell and watch movies and drink keg beer, like, for the rest of my life, I probably would. If you could do that for every movie premiere. Yeah. It's a dream. Yeah, I know, right? We have to mix in sex somehow, too. Like George Costanza it. You know, you get the pastrami <laughs> sandwich, the TV, yep, and yep. also have sex. Like, I'm just saying, we're just spitballing here. But well, what well, about it? But I then guess, you, you could never go through a, a Taco Bell drive through without a hard-on again. Yeah, but sure, I'm fine with that. All I right. mean, that's why... What sauce would you like, sir? Extra fire. Yeah. <laughs> I just want you to let... Actually, you know what? I use the mild. The fire actually uh, irritates, so... We I'm gonna need the hot as much <laughs> for yeah. the hot ropes. Downgrade a little bit, yeah. DJ, I gotta bring home some mild for DJ Thick Ropes. <laughs> how he keeps the sweetness going. But Cody, the original question was, um, what about it? Like broke through because when I when I try to get engaged with a movie for the first time and I'm kind of drunk and let's say half cocked or whatever, like I. I usually just kind of stare at it as like background noise. So what about the hitcher kind of broke through that you were like, holy shit, this is a thing that I need to, because I remember you even like talking to me later and because you tracked it down, watched it all the way through fresh. And then you were like, that movie's amazing. So what about it? Like stuck with you? I can answer that question in one word tone. Yeah. The, the tone of the film, the whole way through from the lighting to the music to the midway through the film when Rutger Hauer kind of turns into a phantom. It's sure. It's just incredible. It, 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 it grips you and it holds you and it doesn't let go. And it like, you try to wiggle out and it just changes its grip, but it's, it's the same hand, but it's a different grip that's holding you throughout it. And then at the end, you're finally released and you just feel that relief. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's one, well, as we'll you just say, kind of like, that's kind of the, the thing about this movie is that, it is so grim. Like, you never think anybody's going to survive anything. And it's also probably the one of the reasons that... Well, I, I'll disagree. I, I would think that you... Spoiler alert. I would think that you do think that the two main characters, or I guess the main character and then co-character are going to survive, and then co-character does not make it. And that really, like, you know... Not that the film gave you a lot of hope to start off with, but just from, like, general film rules from the get-go well you, you would think that the girl was going to make it and then she gets ripped in half by a semi-truck 
Sure. And that, yeah, that's more where I'm going with it is that this movie, as you just kind of said, like in terms of like even horror movie etiquette, this movie breaks a lot of it. Like it's, there's no final girl. Yeah. There's no, there's no final girl. It has a villain who seems like the walking embodiment of death itself. And then like, it goes out of its way to kill cops, to kill the only love interest in the children most horrible screen, way. To shoot children. helicopters out of the air. Yeah, it, it shoots helicopters out of the air. It kills children. It kills families. Like, this is a movie that's relentless. But it also, revisiting it, and then I've spent uh, kind of the, the week in between us watching it and recording it, uh, reading a bunch of Alexandra uh, Heller Nicholas's book, is that she kind of goes through the production history uh, of the movie and nobody wanted to make like everybody basically told Robert Harmon the director that this was a bad idea to make this movie like it took the script passed hands through like a bunch of studios everybody thought that Eric because it's from Eric Red it's the first script I believe he ever sold because he had this and he had near dark like pretty close together because near dark's 86 as well 87 right? i believe oh, it's near dark yeah. 87 i mean so, i think it's 87 but yeah but you know the, another grim tale in a desert oh god yeah but that's all you know the i guess if we're gonna break it down like if a movie's a house you know the script is the foundation uh, blueprint yeah. you know oh, even better um or even the foundation that's another good way to put it if you want to kind of go with the actual structural metaphor but like Eric Red's script like literally scared people. It was something like a hundred and almost eighty pages long. It was you know because of how literary he kind of writes. Like if you've ever read any of his scripts, like they don't read like scripts; they read like books. They read a writer, a modern writer who's very similar to the way that they write, but he's kind of off the reservation as well is uh, S. Craig Zoller. If you ever read his stuff, it literally reads like a book that's just like, oh, and here's a dialogue break. And, you know, like, <laughs> it's just way too wordy. But, like, that's how the Hitcher script was. And everybody read it, and they're like, well, this has something, but it's way too mean. It, like, because they cut a bunch of out of it and, like, rewrites to where, like, they show John Ryder, uh, Rucker Howard's character, like murder a family, decapitate another character. Like, he sexually assaults someone at one yeah, point. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of stuff that they cut out. So they didn't want to make the film. And even after cutting all that out, you watch The Hitcher now and it like whatever it is, like 104 minutes. It's fucking horrifying. And like it keeps that like horrible tone throughout the entire thing. And you can see you're like, oh, yeah, I get why everybody was like, maybe this isn't the best idea. No, it's it's interesting. Like, um, you know, I I hate this this saying. It's like I think everyone says it's like, oh, it's the scary thing is what you don't see. But I think it really works for this film that there's just so many things that happen off screen that you know about. You know, him cutting off legs and heads and killing children and everything else that he's done. And he is just this. He's omnipresent throughout the film and I think that in like in the best slasher film yeah he teleports of, he, he te- I mean, the way that Michael Myers is in Halloween you know, the sense of like he is not a human he is everywhere at once and he can pop up wherever he wants to and you're never safe and I think that like Rucker Hauer you know Harmon as a filmmaker creates that but also Howard just like really embodies that sense of I can find you 
you know, wherever you are. And I think it's scarier than anything we could possibly see. Well, and it's also when you combine it with the actual setting of the movie is that the movie's so incredibly sparse. Yeah. Um, to where, and also even the plot, as much as it even has one, is just guys driving from Chicago to LA with like a, what did they call them back in the day? We were talking about it. It was where you basically, you, you, they still have them. It's like, if you're a moving company, you pay somebody to essentially deliver a car from one city to the next when they're moving. Yeah. My dad did. He, he drove from Illinois to California and they fly you back. You get paid a couple hundred bucks. This is back in like the '60s, I think, before I met my mom, and then they they flew him back. Yeah, and he's driving. I believe it's like a '77 Cadillac from like. Is it a Cadillac? I don't think it's a Cadillac. No, I thought it was a Cadillac. It's a little. It's like a Chrysler or something. Is it like a that. Chrysler? Yeah, it's yeah, a little kind of okay. shitty car. It's well, he's driving that from end. from Illinois to L.A. to deliver it. Picks up a hitchhiker. Hitchhiker ends up being a. Where psychotic. did he pick him up though? It was like Arizona. Yeah, it's Death Valley, right? I believe, because okay. they shot a lot of it in Death Valley and the Mojave and stuff. So like, I, just, I thought I remember them. I think it's New Mexico. A, yeah, technically. And I was like, why did he dip down into New Mexico to get to California? Yeah, because he almost makes it. He has like a J style, right? Like travel hard, hard pattern. South. Let's say, yeah. <laughs> West, yeah. I guess he just wanted to take his time. Maybe he's getting paid by the mile. Who knows. But he's delivering it to L.A., picks up a psycho hitchhiker. Psycho hitchhiker proceeds to kill everyone. Literally. And he says, you know, it's a great scene where he says, we don't know who this guy is yet. If you're watching the movie, you know something's coming. But he says, hey, you know, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. You know, or the, or the guy we just passed back there, I killed him. Like you're saying, I you're killed that whole like, family in that because there's like a Volkswagen bug. His, his head. Yeah. Now I'm going to do the same to you. Yeah. And it's just very clear. It's like, hey, here's the deal. And, you know. Well, he also just says fucked up shit to him, too. He's like, it's, do you know the sound of an eyeball that an eyeball makes when it's punctured? You know how much blood juts out of a man's throat when you cut it? And I would be like, dude, just get out. Like, I'm, it's time to go. What, I mean, how much expectation can you have from a passenger to actually exit your vehicle at that point that's saying these things? To be fair, like, I wouldn't probably drive a car from Illinois to L.A. without a gun in it. Like, hell no. Like, there's no fucking way that I would make it that far. Like, I would I would have protection on me just in case. Like, who knows if it breaks down, if anything happens. Like, I've watched enough movies like The Hitcher to know that the American highway system, not the safest place to be. Horror, Jacob, horror I, films I, I, and, I see the, uh, the Texas has worn off on you. Yeah. So, like, I, I don't care. I'm not a big gun believer. But, like, if I'm traveling, fuck, I'm at least borrowing one from yeah. probably you. Mm, nope. Not me. <laughs> I think we talked about this when we watched it. But it's interesting that the first... The first, you know, still into the first act is almost like a short film. It just has this very self-contained, like, this is a film we would see at a festival of a crazy person gets in your car. It's just good direction of actors and building suspense until he kicks um, Ryder out of the car. And then the film starts in earnest, you know, and the size of the film, too, that like we talked about, like, watching the beginning, it's so small and so, you know, it's just these really tight shots in the car. And by the end, we're talking, like, 
Fucking Fast and the Furious size. <laughs> Some of this car shit. You yeah, know, flipping we, cars and explosions we, and helicopters. and We were all saying, like, is like how close is this to the end? Like, how much bigger could it get? Yep. Like, this, this budget is, it must be huge. or Because they keep crashing cop cars, and then all of a sudden there's a helicopter coming up over the, the, the roadway on the horizon heading towards. And the helicopter like, shit is bananas. Yeah, the helicopter gets shot down by a handgun. We're going to let that go. And it... Crashes and explodes, and it's like every every cop in the fucking county is dead now. Yeah. Well, and there's even like a Terminator style, exactly like cop state, uh, like police station massacre. Yep. Only what's awesome about it is that it's almost like if you slept through the Terminator, yeah, uh, police station massacre, and woke up, and you're like, all of these cops are dead. They think I did it. Yeah. If, if you slept through and were framed for a police station, Halloween massacre. four, we talk about that as well. Another yeah. off well, that was an off screen. They come in and like. Michael Myers has killed all the Haddonfield police. Yeah. It's a very it, 80s thing of... Well, yeah, and I wonder if that's the actual, let's say, I guess who set the tone for that was like Cameron and the Terminator to where it's like, oh, it's okay to do this? Well, it's it's that, but also just how do you, like, it's, yeah, it's okay, but also you watch a film and you're like, the cops can't even help you. Like, yeah, you're, you're in a police yeah. station. You're removing all hope. Like, you, if you're in a police station and he can get there and kill everyone around you, like, you're done. Yeah. Like, there's nowhere to go. Well, and what's even crazy about this movie is that, again, you know, as Cody points out, he's framed for it because writers, let's say, game that he plays with C. Thomas Howell's uh, Jim Halsey, the kid who's driving the car across country is that he's not just there, like he's, he announces early on, I'm there to kill you. But then it's almost like after he kicks him out of the car, his plan changes completely to where it's almost like, oh shit, this kid, it makes you wonder about Ryder because you get no backstory on Ryder. So I had, I, I had a theory he's, about this the night that we were watching it. Well, hold on, let me finish real okay. quick and then we'll kind of go and see if your theory ties into this, is that the first almost act of the movie let's call it where you're just in this rain soaked coffin as it's moving across a highway and riders you know basically flashed a knife at him he said i'm gonna kill you he said all this cryptic shit they even go through like a road stop where there's you know a cop makes them pull down the window because they're going through like a construction site mm-hmm. and which doesn't make any sense at all there's like a weird it kind of does but anyway um he reaches over and like threatens his cock, but also like basically puts his hands between his legs. Like he's going to stab him if he like calls for help or anything. And after Halsey kicks him out, well, hold on. He, he does that. And then the cock, the cop reads that as, as homoerotic. Right. Yeah. There are you, you, you two fairies. Get out of here. Well, he says like you, yeah, have a good night. You two sweethearts. Or, yeah. You know, something like that. But like, they drive off and it's almost like you, it makes you wonder like he clearly played these games with the other families or people that he picked up and they just never fought back. So he killed them. And it's like, well, Halsey actually fights back, kicks him out of the car. And then it becomes a game of like, Oh, well how far can I push this guy? Cause he's not interested in killing him anymore. He becomes interesting and more like, it's almost like a fucking Roadrunner Wiley Coyote cartoon to where they're just, he's fucking with him the whole time and making him drive off cliff after cliff. And we talked about that too, that there's a feeling in the film of, this happens in actually a lot of like 
horror and thrillers where it's like I found a worthy adversary, right? That that writer yeah. has been it's, it's kind of it's now cliche. I don't think at that point it really was yet, but the sense that you know I have been been killing haphazardly across the, the country, yeah. And now I found someone who you said who finally fights back, who has that that energy and and maybe I you know the classic idea of like a little piece of me in him, right? There's he's similar to me, and now. Either he can kill me and end this, or I'm going to find the first challenge I've found in 10 years. Right. That's the feeling I get, you know, from watching that. What was your theory, Cody? So my idea on it was um, he, when he gets him in the car and he pulls the knife, he actually holds it to his throat, threatens his life, and says, I want you to say, I don't want to live, or something along, I don't remember the exact dialogue. It's something along it's, those it's, lines. It's that, yeah. He said, I, I don't want to live. And uh, the, the the kid can't say it, and he has the stroke of luck. The door was ajar, and he's able to kick him out of the car. And I think what that is is that Ryder has, like you said, has been going along for quite some time, haphazardly killing, and all these people that he has murdered up to this point didn't have a strong enough will to survive to overcome him, and he finally found one. So, yeah, the game is on, but I think his ultimate game is to torture him to a point where the kid takes his own life. He wants to snuff out that spark of survival. He That's what he wants to see go. That's his true thrill. Well, I think what's interesting, though, is that his wording, when he starts questioning him again, and he keeps catching up with Jim again and again and again and again, is that it changes from, I want you to say I don't want to live anymore, to I want you to kill me. Like, Ryder explicitly says at one point, I want you to kill me. And to me, it almost becomes that he finds an adversary that essentially he wants to take his place. Like, maybe if he moves on and, like, dies, that he can break any kind of innocence inside of Jim Halsey and make him the next Ryder. Like, I think that's part of it. I think, yeah, I think that's that's what I pick up. There's definitely some kismet between them and seeing Jim and seeing someone that at first he thinks is just like this innocent kind of kid driving a car across country. Like lamb for the slaughter. Yeah. and well, That's, then it's that's like, what Jim thinks. Like, Jim doesn't know that he has any of this in him. I think you're 100% correct. I think that he doesn't. He kicks him out of the car out of impulse. Well, and then, but he's all excited. He's like, because I think that awakens something in him too. If I had a survivor mentality. Right. Which, in truth, a lot of people don't realize till they're in that moment, right? The people who talk about, I think in reality, people talk about being, you know, badass in certain situations sometimes aren't. People who are like, I wouldn't know what I would do, but they, all of a sudden, it's this fight or flight mechanism. And I think the whole film, like, rides that tone, <laughs> sure. like, the whole fucking time. Yeah. Well, and, it's also what gives it the uh, very heavy homoerotic subtext yes. that people have picked, like critics like specifically have picked up on throughout the years to where it's like Rucker Hauer and Jim Halsey or like John Ryder and Jim Halsey are in love. I, I, th you know, and I could definitely pick up on that. And I think like you have the obvious, you know, moment you're talking about Cody where, you know, grabbing the leg and that was just to get out of a situation with a cop. Yeah. But, that was to position the knife, but it's still this like very, you know, close male relationship in a film in the eighties where one guy's hunting the other and, um, a lot of phallic symbols of knives and things like that. Well, and their interactions when like Hucker will, or Wrecker Howard will like grab C Thomas Howell and stuff is like, 
very much like a, a dominant male, basically trying to get another to submit well, to a certain degree. And it's, so, are you posing the allegory for the film is uh, the kid having to kill the homoerotic tendencies in himself? No, I don't think that. I don't think the movies supposed to be homoerotic at all i just think it's something that came out of the performance and like it's true subtext like it's something you just read into it because eric red in interviews over the years has like basically denied it has been like well no i didn't write it that way that's not my intention i honestly didn't pick up on any of that they said uh in the book and stuff that that all comes from hauer like hauer himself it's just his performance and wanted like the whole crotch thing and all that, like that was just him in the moment, like bring it out, bring it out, which makes sense when you think about Howard's career as like a whole, because you know, like working with Paul Verhoeven and stuff like Turkish Delights, and where he's a hitchhiker in that as well, um, and just like kind of that raw sexual appeal he's always had, like even in something like Blade Runner where he's running around with no shirt on and everything, like. Howard's just a fluidly sexual individual and performer in particular. And it makes sense that people are like, no, it's from him. He kind of has a Bowie energy in that. Yeah. <laughs> in that's that re- that's in, a great analogy. In that respect, because like, well, as it's, it, he has like a masculine Bowie energy. Which we, also makes sense because apparently they considered Bowie. Oh, I did not know that. Of, yeah, he was, he was one of the... Yeah, yeah, he was one of the ones. Not, not actually, one of the more interesting... Like, that, it's an interesting one, but not one of the ones where I was like, oh, okay. Not the best one I've read about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Howard is a, a performer that, um, if he's in a film, I'm going to check it out. Like, I saw A Breed Apart two years ago. With um, he and our our boy Powers Booth, um, <laughs> is that the one where he's the mountain man? He's the mountain man. It's the and it's, Powers it's, Booth is like a sheriff. In he it? no, he's being sent up there to. Sh- he's not a sheriff. He's working with the authorities, and it's Philip Philip Moreau who did uh, uh, the third Howling, the Howling Three. Yeah. yeah, so it's but, also did a great western with. Um, Dennis Hopper in the seventies in one? Australia called Mad Dog Morgan. Oh, that movie. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's interesting. Like you know, Howard's the kind of person that again, like whenever he's in a film, I'm going to check it out because he seems like a performer to me. And I don't know the history of this that he's kind of marching to his own the beat of his own drum. I agree. That you know he's being directed, but you watch Blade Runner. You know, you watch Blind Fury. You watch this. There's just this energy that comes through no matter what part he's playing. Good guy, bad guy. Um, you know, even being the quote unquote villain in Blade Runner, which he's really not, you know, but he's still giving us like you said, the sexual energy. I also wonder how much direction Howard would take. Like if he was doing a lot of his own stuff. Well, because like, I feel like he's like the European Brando. But I mean, if you're working with Verhoeven was, who was um, notoriously great with actors, but also let them kind of, float and find the energy of the movie as opposed to the other way around like that makes sense because you know like perfect example outside of like Howard is like Paul Verhoeven has said like with L like Isabel Huppert basically directed that movie like he just followed her energy makes and let <laughs> her kind of dictate the tone the entire time so I wonder if that's the energy that Howard is bringing hmm. to a lot of his performances or at least just as an actor in general, because like, you know, there's also that crazy story that like he hated Sylvester Stallone on Nighthawks <laughs> and wanted to kill him 
because like Stallone fucked with him the whole time and like he even got hurt during one of the stunts or something and like he just he didn't want to be on set with him anymore so you wonder if he's just one of these guys who just is operating on his own wavelength the entire time it feels like he is and I think that's like what's great about and this film too we were talking about it we were watching it that you know it, it maybe is true subtext with the the homoerotic kind of narrative that's happening in this film but you have like I can't imagine two more opposite actors than Rucker Hauer and C. Thomas Howe like C. Thomas Howe was like this person this pretty boy they're trying to make into the star at that yeah, time he was big after Outsiders Outsiders because yeah, he played Pony Boy and yeah. they, were, they were pushing him to be this like this bigger celebrity he did some bigger films and Rucker Hauer is Soul Man Soul Man or one of you know interesting film but you know <laughs> but see you know then you have Hauer who's like this like Actor, actor, I feel like, you know, who is bringing, you know, this energy of like, I've worked with some great directors. I also know what I'm doing. And Hal is just kind of, but this film pushes, see, Thomas Hal's great in this movie. Like, I think he's awesome. I think he has, I think he's asked to rise to the occasion. He is, but I think he does. I I think that like, it's his best performance, hands down. I don't, I can't think of a better film. You think it's better than Soul Man? (laughs) Yes. I, he's actually great in The Outsiders, too. I think Coppola drew some stuff out of him for that. I'm not a huge Outsiders fan. Like, it's fine. It's it's messy. Yeah. Like, as far as Rutger Hauer's performance in this or anything that Rutger Hauer does, uh, I I kind of feel like he's the European Marlon Brando. He's a, a raw nerve that can control only himself. Like, you can give him direction, but he's going to decide what he does with his own energy and his own elemental force. Um and I think maybe he made a decision in this movie that if his character got into the car with the kid and he felt like if a way that he could really make this kid uncomfortable outside of the crazy ass shit he was saying was to approach him in a homoerotic way, just to push him a little further, then that's what he would do. Well, I also wonder how much of that stuff comes out naturally, too, because, you know, 70s and 80s there's an interesting discussion to have with regards to this movie in terms of like how it came out after the rise of the, the serial killer and the specifically like, and a lot of these serial killers were killing from town to town and highways and stuff like that. You did have some localized ones like BTK and things like that, but yeah, but golden state killer was going up and down California at this point, golden state killer, uh, Ted Bundy yep. moved from state to state. Zodiac was still around. Zodiac was solved, still, yeah. yeah, you're still in the aftermath of the Zodiac. So I wonder how much of that is being drawn upon the idea that like these guys get off on power and get off on hurting people and stuff. And that it doesn't matter that C. Thomas Howell or Jim Halsey in this case is a man. It's just, this is what revs John Ryder up. Like, it's just like, Oh, I have an adversary. I get to fuck with this guy and like really hurt him. And he's just, he's going for it. You know, it's a sexual attraction no matter how you cut it. Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, sex and murder in film and in life are, I think like this, they're tied together and, and how many serial killers who've been interviewed, it's such a sexual thrill. Yeah. You know, and I think, or even the cliche when you watch something like a criminal minds where they're like, there's semen everywhere. Yeah, well, my 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 counters everywhere. <laughs> my counter to that would be once he uh, gets what was her name in the movie? Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Jason no, Lee. No, Nash. Character. Yeah, Nash. <laughs> once he gets uh, her alone in the motel room, he's calling with her in bed. She's under the impression that it's the kid. He could have taken advantage of her. He didn't. Sure. 
Yeah, that's that's more though. I think just like that's good for a scare. That's the way I view that. Yeah. Is for us. As an well, that, that's that's the point I'm making too. Is that he's in it for the scares? Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. It's the fun of it. Right. Of doing it. Um, it's it's but sport. I'm glad... him. I, I I don't feel like it's sexual for him. I feel like it's a sport. Well, but not with her. But I think the I think his his draw to see Thomas Howell is is a sexual thing. I don't well, feel like it's a sexual draw. I think it's a put on to make C. Thomas Hell more uncomfortable. But he doesn't he doesn't see it. We see it. Yeah. He's like playing almost entirely to the fourth wall at that point. Yeah, right? like in the one scene where he touches his leg, yes. Yeah. The rest though, we're only seeing that intensity. We're the one picking up on that energy. Unless that's, that's how I You could also well, you could also kind of interpret that as like you are the fly on the wall, but that feeds into your reading more is that it's not sexual with her, it's sexual with him. It's like it still kind of works for the argument. I see where Cody's going yeah. with it, basically. So like it works for the argument. Um, but I'm glad you brought up Nash and Jennifer Jason Lee because it is interesting that in weird fashion the woman who becomes who comes between them has to be destroyed. And he does it quite literally by ripping her apart between two semis in the movie's like nastiest fucking moment. But like off camera. Off camera. But think, still disturbing as shit. You, you, I think you still got the audio though, don't you? I'm not it's, sure if I would want to see it. Even as being as big a gore hound as I am, like the implication enough because that scene is so fucking tense and gross and sweaty and like you you never think she's gonna die. Like the first time I watched this, I was like, oh, there's no way she dies. And then it happens, and you're like, holy shit. Like that's when you knew this movie was done. Like at, by the end, I didn't know who was gonna live. Like it was done fucking around. Yeah. No, it's uh No, she's and she's an interesting addition because like from a screenwriting perspective, like you could make the whole film with just the two of them. Like, you know, like Dark Tower. It's she's needed though. She's totally necessary yeah. to like round out the film. But I could see another version of this where it's just the two of them. It's just this cat and mouse. But she represents, I think, the innocence out there and also like the great narrative of her coming to help him. Sure. You know, how many times that she kind of like Well, comes she in, in a weird way with it's my biggest motivational question of the movie is that like she just goes ride or die like instantly. It's out of nowhere. After honestly. like meeting, phrasing, yeah, like after meeting him in the R- ride uh, or die. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, like after meeting him in a diner, you know, he's all beaten and bloody. She literally cooks him food before they open, right? Yeah, yeah, and like makes a bomb ass looking burger. By the way, a great looking burger. Where you <laughs> find a finger in the French fries, though, which doesn't make. Any sense, but it's fine. No, originally so, it was supposed to be an eyeball, eyeball in the in the hamburger. hamburger to go along with the motif of like him talking about popping an eyeball with the switchblade, which they should the have film. stuck with. I don't know how that would work. I like the finger in the French fries. How does that work? What do you mean? Did she deep fry the fries and then he? Well, that's what no, no, no. I think we're talking about. Just like, how did he physically get it in there? Just, like that's the, one of the most ghostly the, parts the, of the, like John Ryder's. The same existence. way Five Guys puts cheese in the middle of their burger patties, you just you mold the burger around the eyeball. Oh, it's just like a special sauce. Yeah. Okay. Special ocular I sauce. I some Five Guys right now. Yeah, you want some Five Guys? No, I do. Calm down, Tiger. But what were we talking about? Oh, Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah. So her motivation makes no sense. She goes from like innocent diner waitress to like. 
right or die. cocking a fucking shotgun at cops at one point yeah. and like breaking them out. And you're like, it's awesome, but it's also, it plays into the whole idea of like, maybe not that John Ryder is jealous per se, but is like, okay, well he can't have an accomplice. Like it's me and him. She's got to fucking go. Yeah. It's a, I, I think that she acts, her part seems the most uneven in the film. I, I just think like the addition of her, and I think I mean she's also like also a rising star at that point. This is this is post um, Fast Times and and well, and the only other person to work with Howard before because she was in Flesh and Blood. I love that yeah, movie for Paul Verhoeven the year before. Yeah, I forgot they were together. Yeah, she uh, boosted for he, for him to be in this. Yeah. Like she was a big reason that like Howard's in the movie. Well, that's that's freaking cool, and and she's and I love her. Like anytime she's in the movie, like I'm even up to the, this year, Possessor. Like whenever she shows up. Well, Jennifer Jason Lee is like one of the great American actresses of all time. Yeah, like it's in, doesn't get the credit she deserves. Yeah, it's indisputable. Like even in the '80s, up through like the early '90s, like uh, I've been female. Oof. Well, single white female. I just watched Hateful Eight. Well, Hateful Eight, but I, I just watched um, a movie of hers I'd never seen before called Rush. Oh, it's awesome. Jason, Jason Patrick yeah. as like undercover. Narcotics like, agents. Yeah, right, narcotics yeah. agents. Not a great film, but she's great in it. Um, another movie I just saw called Heart of Midnight, where she plays this emotionally damaged, like sexual assault victim. Who, oh, yeah. I, I forgot. When I was, yeah, you, you went on a, you inadvertently went on a uh, Jason Lee kick. You yeah. had like three uh, Blu-rays sitting on your dining table. Yeah, and it, they just all happen to have her, but she inherits like a haunted, possibly nightclub. It's really fucking weird. It's like a, a lost David Lynch movie. Hell yeah. Almost. Um, but she, the point where I'm going with this, Miami Blues is another great one where she plays Alec Baldwin's weird pixie-esque kind of love interest. But point I'm going for is that there was no pinning Jennifer Jason Lee down. She worked with idiosyncratic artists. She always kind of picked weird material. And I think that always is what made her incredibly interesting like even when the movies aren't good you're like oh well jennifer jason lee's in it <laughs> so i'll watch it like it's just a backdraft too it's like what are you doing here yeah. like, you're awesome yeah like you're <laughs> the underwritten part <laughs> yeah you're the sexiest person in this besides kurt russell true and ge- geometry worksheet face billy baldwin yeah right so such a weird Have you watched any of her uh netflix series atypical where she's the the mother to a was she in that? I didn't watch Son that. that's autistic. I've watched in the background while Carrie watches it in, yeah. and it's just nails on a chalkboard to me. Yeah, Keir Gilchrist annoys the fuck out of me. Michael Rappaport is her husband. I He's hilarious, but... <laughs> yeah, especially in Deep Blue Sea. But, he, but he's like the straight man in this one, so it's a little different. Yeah, in real life, he's just this like... He's a maniac. Yeah, I love him. His an, his anti Trump rant is just oh, like, yeah. pack your shit, <laughs> you fucking blow job. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but they um Jennifer Jason Lee, as you kind of just mentioned, rallied for Howard to basically be uh in the movie at all. But it's kind of crazy we were reading about who he beat out. Yeah. Uh, for the role, yeah, fill me in. Not only well, David Bowie, not not only beat out, but was selected. Like the the, the guy we're going to talk about was not chosen because he was too creepy about it. 
Yeah. There were two guys, specifically. There was Terrence Stamp, who basically signed oh on and was going to do it. Oh, wait. It gets better. That's the worst of the two. He was going to do it and then kind of was just like not into the genre side of it. And then it was going to be Sam Elliott. What? Who was going to be John Ryder, who was apparently so creepy that he freaked one of the producers out. And they were like... No, he freaked the director out. Was it the director? Yeah. No. I thought thought it was the producer. Now I got to ask Robert Harmon about this when I talk to him this week. That would be interesting because with with Elliott... Because he has this like nice, he has this very nice persona. I mean, you think about you know Roadhouse. He's like so lovable. And this is pre Roadhouse. Yeah, pre Roadhouse. Anything he's ever done, he's so lovable. He's you know he's great. But you think about, I could see if they're going for this western vibe, which they obviously are. They have a true on like old western oh, yeah. feeling star walk. You know, climb into your he's car. A, he's a cowboy in a car. Yeah, cowboy yeah. in a car, and it's just like you know, I could see with that that Sam Elliott accent. That would have been but there was, awesome. There was a lot of people that this cycled through because, again, a lot of people were scared off by Red's script. I mean, admittedly, because Eric Red is a legitimate maniac. But, like, um, everyone from, like, Charlie Sheen to, I think, Emilio Estevez. And Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. They were all considered for Halsey, too, and basically got talked out of it. Like they Hanks ch- would have been interesting too. Yeah, same energy. Yeah, as C. Thomas Howell, especially like young nineteen eighty six Hanks. Like I'm thinking about Hanks from like what's that slasher movie? He knows you're alone. He knows you're alone. Yeah, where he's the weird dude who like literally explains the rules of slasher movies, like in the midst of the boom. Anyway, <laughs> not, not the best movie, but he's good in it. Yeah. Um. Anyway, but he there were a lot of people who basically got cycled through until they finally landed on C. Thomas Howell post uh, the Outsiders. So. You know, that's kind of amazing. All right. Um, I was just doing a little IMDb research, and apparently during uh, Sam Elliott's role, Feldman was so freaked out by his audition that he was afraid to go out of his car afterwards, but it was ultimately a scheduling conflict that kept Elliott out of the film. Feldman? Oh, man. Yeah. Like one of the producers. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, Corey Feldman? He's way too young at that point. <laughs> and before we get into questions, yeah, money. I do want to kind of illustrate the main MVP of the movie, who is John Seal. The Fuck. guy who shoots this, who was an Osploitation uh, director of photography. He'd worked on everything from like Brian Trenchard Smith's uh, BMX Bandits to um, Peter Weir's The Last Wave. Like he was a camera operator, worked his way up to like being a DOP, worked on like Gallipoli would eventually go on to shoot Mad Max Fury Road, which totally makes sense after you watch all the fucking Karstens in this movie. But we uh, were making the comment while we watched this that, like, this is the greatest work of American exploitation in history because it feels like a movie that was shot in the outback in the 70s. You know, if you if watching that film, and I, I haven't spent much time in the Southwest, but... If you told me, hey, by the way, they shot this in Australia, not would it wouldn't been surprised. Yeah, no, because I just rewatched Razorback, um, and I don't, I don't think Seal shot that. No, but it devs has they have a similar like it has that mold. There's the shot, the one that we were watching. Like this is like one of my favorite shots. You said where it moves in and took the shotgun in the foreground. Oh and, yeah, and he's getting up. Yeah, yeah. Feels like a Russell Mulcahy shot. It feels like that, yeah. that wildness of an exploitation. That film. ground rise of the camera, just beautiful. And you know, having us watching, having us watched Razorback, a lot of wide angles, 
a lot of like great use of like you know Western iconography and this weird like it's almost hard to put it into words, right? Yeah, you know, way that ethereal. Yeah, and it, there's something, and I love exploitation so much. I want to fair Turner Smith films is Frog Dreaming or The Quest with you know Henry Thomas, and there's a look and a feel and a. The, I feel like the Outback is different from the American West, and it kind of injects a little bit of that insanity of the Outback. Yeah. Of there's, an, there's, there's, a, there's a spiritual energy out here. Yeah. Right? Which you definitely get in the Outback films, right? You know, the sense of Aboriginal history and things like that. And I, I can feel that here. Well, and this would be a big jumping off point for his career because he'd go on to at least be nominated for, I think he actually won an Oscar for The English Patient for the cinematography. Mm, yeah for that also shot like uh talented mr ripley like he made a lot of good looking movies um talented mr ripley is a beautiful film yeah it's, the same director as english patients so exactly. he seems to get you know yeah. he, he he'll bond with somebody and then they just make movies together but i mean peter weir makes some of the best looking movies of all time so, period you know he shot mosquito coast john seal he right? did yeah that's a just just rewatch that too i mean like one of, Weir's, movie. one of Weir's best films, one of his prettiest films. Also probably one of his most undervalued movies. And Schrader wrote like, the script. Uh, yeah. Well, he also shot Witness. Yep. Oh, my year, God. The year before. Just watch that. Yeah, another great Peter Weir movie. And also another huge like American stepping stone in John Seale's career. But, I mean, you don't beat Fury Road, though. Like, he shot Fury Road... One of the most insane movies of all time. My Wi-Fi network. He just found out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so is, is he going to be involved in the sequel? Do we know? I don't know or yet. I don't pre- know if anybody prequel. knows. Yeah, it's all very. We'll see in five defined. years. We'll see but also, years. yeah, like Fury Road took like what almost a decade to yeah. make. So who knows? We might all be dead by the time it actually comes out. It's possible. Yeah, I hope I'm not. Just for that reason. Yeah, me too. Like I want to stick around for a little bit. But do we want to get into questions? Let's do it. Questions. If you give this man a ride, sweet family, 
Welcome back, and we've got questions about 1986's The Hitcher. Cody? Yes, sir. This is your ride. We're just along for it. Hit us. All right. Question number one. Jake, I'm going to start you off with this one. Go. Uh, what scene or idea would you incorporate into a project of your own from this film to take? Are you just using the last set of questions uh, I'm using, from Battle Royale? I've, I've been using the same question, I think, pretty much this entire podcast. Damn, I just noticed now. Um, the scene that I would use... It doesn't have to be a scene. It can also be a theme or idea. I... Man. I really like the shotgun shootout at the end. Like, I would steal that heavy caliber, middle of nowhere, two guys going at it. One just has... You knew the name of the shotgun, right? Spaz 12. It's a Spaz 12. Yeah, somebody just using a Spaz 12 against somebody else. I mean, I just love that type of shit. I'm I'm obviously a big action guy. And anytime you incorporate such a specific gun, it really kind of gets me going so like yeah i would steal that great answer can we also take a a sidebar here to just note for a moment that uh the mattress king of austin is actually a gun expert he is a gun expert that that doesn't shoot guns another odd wrinkle in the martin carlson (laughs) legend (laughs) no he he only shoots the guns with a shooting with his uh, his gloved hand we were watching and i Kind of spoke up. My, like, oh, that's a spaz. That's a spaz. That's like, a spaz. Well, yeah. I was like, oh. And we had the argument about is that a thirty? I'm like, no, it's not a thirty-eight. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a forty. If, like, if, a you name, if you misname a gun, Martin will catch it and he'll be like, no, 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 that's that's a thirty-eight. So as I explained uh, to you, gentlemen, um, it's a weird, like you said, wrinkle in my biography. My brother and I are both like very liberal and all about gun control, but we grew up like a lot of kids in the nineties and eighties, like obsessed with guns. Well, you're from Indiana, from Indiana. So we, we played airsoft and we were obsessed with guns. My brother was a huge Punisher fan, the comics, which was like, especially the Punisher armory had like, very detailed. This all tracks. <laughs> like, like I gun. like now imagining like a dead ringer style intro to Martin Carlson to where like your brother's just wearing a Punisher t-shirt and you're wearing nothing but a glove and he's just like yelling horrible shit at you. No, it's really time. funny because like oddly enough, Martin is the one they call the Punisher wearing the one glove. Well, that's how he became the mattress king. Of that's Boston. how I am. But that's how he became DJ hot ropes. <laughs> I'll take that. Um, <laughs> They, but no, we just like knew a lot about guns and, and it's funny that our parents were like both like very anti-gun and they still are and, and I really am in a lot of ways, but we just, you know, knew a lot about that shit. So when I watch movies, I'm like, that's what that is. Yeah. I like it. Like, <laughs> I wish I had that. Uh, there's two things I wish I had that kind of knowledge base on is guns and cars. I, cars for me. I have nothing for cars. Yeah. I know what cars I like and like the models, but like under a hood, I'm fucking useless. Carrie like, can fix all of our stuff. And it's like the most emasculating moment ever to where I'm like, I can't change my life. She's like, come here. Define our stuff, you. like automotive stuff. Yeah. Anything, anything automotive, Carrie will just get right under the hood because her brother and her dad, her build, twin brother. Yeah, her twin brother and her dad build cars together. What? And her dad... I did not know this. Her brother does something in cars, but her dad was like an instructor for years at like the General Motive 
plants. That's the thing. In, they, they get paid big money. Yeah, like, and he like was like a teacher there uh, for years in Chicago. That's fucking cool. Yeah. So, but like, she also knows how to fix anything on a car. So, it's kind of awesome. Yeah, I. Uh, that's one thing I would. Li- I know what I like again. I'd, I would love to be able to like work on a hot rod, like in. Maybe not build the whole thing, but I went to the hot rod thing here in Austin and like talked to the people. Men and the, women who, the, the car show? The car show, the, the hot rod car show out there on the, the east side or whatever. And yeah. like talking to those people, it's like there's a hot rod whole group out in uh, Taylor. Sure. And I was like, hey, can I use one of your hot rods for like this film I want to make? They're like, yep. Yeah. Like the coolest fucking people. I would love to be able to do that. Yeah. Did, they, did they want you to pay them or was it just. No, they're just like, hey, we'll come hang out. Like, well, they, they were very open about it. Case and, of beer. Yeah, I mean, they, that's the best mentality. Awesome. So, yeah. Uh, I can answer yeah. the question if you want. Um, Please. For me, it's cars. Like I, I, I've always wanted to make a road trip kind of horror film. So I think like the element of that, of being followed by someone, you see it in, there's a great Twilight episode, Twilight, Twilight Zone episode called, I think it's The Hitchhiker, right? Where she's being, woman's being followed. And then also in, um, I think it's in Tales from the Dark Side. I believe is one of the one of the segments there about a woman who hits a, who hits a homeless man. And he her he basically haunts her for the rest of the the segment. I kind of remember that. I yeah, think, I think it's, I well, there's that, even like, stuff like Steven Spielberg's Duel. It, it, well, and Duel's my shit. I, I mean, yeah. like, um, so Duel's great. Joe Hill and Stephen King wrote uh, Throttle, which is a, fo- a follow up to that in the same world. Which Joe Hill, who is Stephen King's son, his son, yeah, and they wrote the. You still have my comic, right? Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> nope, I pooped on it. You burned, burned it. it. Uh, I was like, did I have that? trash. Um, but they wrote a whole thing, Throttle, which is like in the same world where that truck is hunting a a group of um, of a biker gang. and But they have like <laughs> grenades and shit. They're fighting this you know, giant uh, truck with. So I would love to make... Just goes full maximum overdrive. Exactly. Anything where I could do like a, a highway, like backwoods or backwoods or like highway in the West with just cars. I mean, again, Fury Road is just a dream movie for me. But with a horror bent, that's what I would take from the Hitcher. Thematically, visually, all that. How about you, Cody? So I've got a two-part answer. The first part of it is like the uh, the middle act of the film where Rutger Hauer is kind of this um, phantom that is momentarily embodied from time to time. It's very kind of Fight Club-esque, right? Yeah. Um, we, we, we wondered, like, is, could it right, be possible there, he's in yeah, his head, there, right? there, yeah. there is the ongoing discussion of if, if he is real or not. If he's, I mean, he's definitely real, but... He's real. Yeah, he's, one, he, he's 100% not, real. It's not backed by anything in the actual movie. Like, yes, I mean, he there, kind of appears here there, and there, there but are like moments, other characters interact with him. There the are writer. moments you could draw theories from, but that's like very QAnon kind of shit. Um, so I, I I like that element of it, that very like Fight Club, Phantomy, uh, omnipresent. Uh, also very homoerotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Uh, but what also I really like that's very nuanced uh, is the... The scene in which the credits roll that feels like the end the, the end game credits to a video game when the kid is just hanging out next to his vehicle just like chain shifting position there's the uh, the setting sun behind him as the credits roll and it just it for the first time since you met Rutger Hauer like you get a chance to like exhale and just feel like we've done it the ride is over oh 
What happens to Jim Halsey at the end of this movie? He's, That's he's, one of my next questions. He's well. Let's let's get to that. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, well, let's. Okay. What happens to the to to the kid after this, Jacob? Well, I mean, he's definitely got some explaining to do. Does he um, though? Because the cops seem to have exonerated him once the uh, once Nash is drugged between the semi and the trailer. Sure, but he still has to explain why he killed a guy. Like does nah, Ryder's still dead. There's some there. there there's going to be some paperwork. If we'll I just put up- it that way. So, like, no, you ask me, and I'll I'll tell you. Um, let's just put <laughs> it that way. I kind of agree with the way that you're saying. Like, eh, I don't know how. Like, I don't think he's going to jail or anything. But I think there's definitely going to be like he's never going to live a normal life. No, but that's where I'm going next. Uh-huh. Is I think in a weird way, this goes one of two ways. He lives with the trauma and recovers and like has to deal with it throughout his life and blah, blah, blah. Or he becomes John Ryder. He goes off into the desert and he just can't live with it. He becomes a maniac. Um, which may be what John Ryder wanted. Which is sort of... I watched Harmon's later oh, yeah. uh, horror, road horror movie called Highwaymen. Which is almost like a spiritual sequel to The Hitcher in a lot of ways in that it's... Have you seen it, Cody? No. I, I know that Martin Martin has seen it. Well, no, Martin wasn't with me, so like... Oh, okay. just watch it. But separately. I just finished it again today, so... it's a, It came out in 2004. Um, it's Shot a movie where... Yeah. Roughly... Yeah, but like... Made for New Line Cinema. Um, it stars Jim Caviezel... And Rona Mitra and oh, Colm Fiore. These are yes. great names. Like and Frankie Faison, who and, yeah, Frankie Faison ups from any movie, Manhunter and well, everything. You know. Well, from Manhunter in The Wire, Silence of the Lambs, and Silence yeah. of the Lambs. Like what? What are the great and do the right thing? Yep. Like when he's around, it's going to be a good time. So there's something interesting watching Highwaymen is that you're almost 20 years removed from the Hitcher, and it's very much treading. Let's say the similar thematic ground as the Hitcher, but it's all about transformation to where in the Hitcher, the Hitcher is an entire movie about transformation and and Ryder dueling with um, Halsey and seeing if he can push him to the edge and how far and eventually, you know, Halsey ending up killing Ryder and there's an interpretation of the film is that now Halsey takes Ryder's place. Who knows? Well, Highwaymen is an entire movie about car crashes and what car crashes take from you and transform you into because it's about uh, Jim Caviezel watches his wife get basically mowed down by a serial killer. Per- yeah, just rides off the road on purpose. It's played by Colm Fiore who drives around in a 72 El Dorado and just randomly picks people off, mows them down. And it's about how he becomes the hunter as essentially like Confiori is like his Moby Dick and he's Ahab and he's hunting him down or the better way or more direct way to kind of relate the two movies is that this is almost like the Friday the 13th, the final chapter of mm. road slashers 
because it's like if you watched uh, an entire movie from the kid who's out to hunt Jason Voorhees' perspective to like avenge his sister, like that's the movie. He's just hunting him down and Rona Mitra is essentially a survivor who she gets attacked in a tunnel by Colm Fiore in a really wild sequence awesome. where there's like a fucking horse involved <laughs> yep. and like runs down her, uh, her best kills friend. her best friend. Um, and then she meets Kavijal in like a support group to where like, again, one of the big themes of the movie is kind of laid out because like the leader of the support group like starts rattling off these statistics that are supposed to be like, uh, let's say comforting. To essentially let you know, like, you know, 50,000 people in America die a year of, like, auto accidents. And it's like, you're not alone. Other people are suffering from this and blah, blah, blah. And Kavijal, like, stands up in the middle of it and is like, but I'm an indiv- individual. Like, this happened to me. Like, the other 49,999 don't make me feel better. You know? And he essentially kidnaps Rona Mitra... <laughs> To hunt down Colm Fiore because... Or to use her as bait. To use her essentially as bait. But what's interesting about it is that it becomes an entire film about how car crashes tran- like basically transform you for good or ill because like Fiore's in a car crash at some point. He's an auto adjuster who like learns to cover up his crimes like through and essentially gets his first like thrill through like car crash photos and stuff. And it's all about that creative spark that people find in car crashes to where some people it ruins, other people it gives like a determination to hunt people down. And with like Fiori, it's like his passion, like the thing that like really turns him on is killing people with a car. And it's 80 minutes of like really insane car stunts and everything to where... Uh, they're just in duel with each other. But to tie this back into your question, Cody, is that you could almost view this as like, yes, Colm Fiore has like a whole backstory. There's like this weird mechanical thing because he's in like a wheelchair and like his body is supported by like different pieces of like harnesses and mechanics and stuff. And like, and he views his car as like a shell almost, but, if you took his backstory out, you could almost watch it as a sequel to where it's almost like, well, what happened to Jim Halsey after the hitcher? Like he could have easily become this serial killer that traverses America's highways and like kills people off with his car and stuff. He's just the new John Ryder. But like ultimately the entire movie is about like the randomness of death and how like it can choose you and like, Yes, you can cling to other people to basically pull yourselves out of it, but if your time's up, it's up. It just, you know, involves amazing car stunts. Yeah, I, um, I'll answer your question, but also I want to <laughs> talk about how great that fucking movie is as well. But um, yeah, I, I see. You know, even though he's uh, exonerated by the cops, it seems like in the movie he's so fucked up by his you know experience with Ryder that you know I think he has one or two choices. It's that. You know, he does lots of therapy. Maybe he becomes a hero of some sort who hunts down people like Ryder or becomes a writer himself. Um, again, I feel like Highwayman, like you said, is like a... It, there's there's no way it's not 
even more than a spiritual sequel. Like you don't. I remember when Highwaymen came out. It said from the director of The Hitcher. Well, it even has the same composer. Yeah, Mark you, Isham. Got, you got Mark Isham. So it has the same like. I mean, the tone. Like I mean, you should watch it, Cody. The tone is like very similar. It's like again that these backroads of America aren't safe. Um, that you know, even if there's cops around, you're not safe. And um, so my thinking is probably hopeful that he becomes some sort of hero um, and heals. But if I were to write the badass sequel, I would do what Jacob said and, and make him, he continues the work of John Ryder, even though he doesn't want to. Nice. How about you? I'll ask the question. Uh, what happens after the end? Is he, what happens to the kid? Oh, okay. Thank you. <clears throat> so I feel like at the end of it all, he's, Relax for a moment, but he's still obviously shattered as a human. So he has to go through life. Like he went when he when he started his journey, he was this affable, easygoing guy that found within himself this spark to survive that was brought about in him by Howard's character holding a, a knife to his throat and him kicking him out his door ajar, and then everything that he went through, and then he lost a potential love. He went through a slaughter of a police station. I have to imagine, if if I place myself in the character's shoes, that at the end of all this, when you know that the antagonist has been eliminated, you must feel like you've done something that most other human beings in the society that you are a part of probably could not have done. So I feel like that has to give you a sense of self-confidence. I don't necessarily feel like that needs to turn you into a psychopath. I just feel like it could give you a sense of I can conquer anything and, and a, a lack of fear in any situation you could embrace. So be that, I don't know, the stock market or, or college or yeah. whatever. I just like feel Jeff like, Bridges and Fearless. And yeah. <laughs> I just feel like it, 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 would, it, it, would, it would just remove fear from your character because you're like, I've been through the worst fucking thing that could ever happen so give me what you've got and i will show you that i can beat it so i feel like this guy i don't know becomes gordon gecko or something yeah there could be a lot of you get I me mean, you could honestly like take i could see this being a you know someone taking and doing a really weird sequel yeah <laughs> and, and they have the sequel with, with jake Busey. i haven't seen the sequel with jake Busey, the straight to video one it's bad okay well yeah i'm gonna skip it what did you? Did either of you watch the remake? I, I didn't. I watched Highwayman instead, no. but I didn't watch the remake. I've seen it. It's not good. Like yeah. the and Platinum we'll, Dunes one with Sean Bean. Yeah, it's and, ah poor Sean Bean. Yeah, yeah, but dies again. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine marrying Jim Halsey, like, uh, but not knowing. But like not know. Like, how does that conversation go? You're you're just like. Hey, honey. So, like, ooh, I got to tell you why I don't ride in cars anymore. Um, real long story. So, are you ready? <laughs> She's like, "Hey, my sister's getting married in Arizona," and he's like, "Yeah." Ah. Uh. He runs over their three children. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. What did you say? Uh, are we going to Arizona? <laughs> <laughs> what else you got, Cody? All right, uh, Martin, let's start you off with this one. Which Hudger Rao... Wow. 
Hot Corral? Yep, that was it. You called him Hot Corral last week. We were watching the movie. Hot Corral. Hot Corral. Reiterated pronunciation. God damn it. Rutger Hauer. Which Rutger Hauer film or performance is your favorite? It's tough. I mean, it's got to be Blade Runner. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, I, I know, like, that's just the easy answer. His Tears and Rain speech, which he wrote, is just... He, he, he didn't write it. <clears throat> he performed it on set. Yeah, that's my understanding. He just improv it. He's amazing. Um, it's a close one. Honestly, for me, the three are Blade Runner, Hitcher, and Blind Fury. Like, those are the films that he's... Um, I also like him in Night... I mean, like, again, I haven't seen a film that he's in that I'm like, man, Howard wasn't too good in that. Like, he always ups the game. He really fucked that one up. What's that? <laughs> Is it? He really yeah. fucked that no, one up. No, yeah, it's never that case where I'm just like... He really, he really rucked that one up. Well, and another one we talked about that Jacob brought up last... I guess when we were watching it was Split Second, which is like fucking awesome where he plays this cop slash monster hunter in like a semi-futuristic London. It's basically been overrun. It's basically flooded. So, and it's Tony Malum who directed the the burning and it's just this really cool, like early nineties heart ripping demon, heart ripping demon. And, and the, 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 the cover looks like a mixture of like predator and, um, and, and the alien. So it's like, you know, Rucker Howard with these like badass, like sunglasses, a weird futuristic looking shotgun. And behind him, this like eight foot tall alien walking behind him. And that movie is really fucking great. But if I had to choose one, I mean, it's Blade Runner. I think that's it. Jacob, to you, sir. It's a tough one. I mean, yeah, you could go with Blade Runner because it is the most iconic, probably. I really like Nighthawks. Um, great movie in general. Um, his whole like '80s run. I'm literally just kind of scrolling like down. Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk. A movie I'm not particularly. He's great though. Yeah, I just don't think it's a great movie. His soundtrack is um, but weird. <laughs> <laughs> but. But I'm a I'm a huge fan. That soundtrack straight booty hole. I'm, I'm a god damn it. I'm a huge fan of like his uh, Verhoeven run when he was young. Um, I would probably pick Soldier of Orange, uh, the epic war movie that uh, Verhoeven made, just about like uh, the Nazi occupation and collaborators and the three students who basically like kind of made their way out and took their different paths because Howard's great in that. I mean, he's great in Turkish delight. He's great in spetters. I don't know if you guys have ever seen spetters Spetters. and the motorcycle gang movie. Uh, You want to talk about, well, there's that great story that like, you know, uh, soldier of orange was the movie that essentially convinced Like Spielberg, I think, is the way that this story goes, or the legend goes, we should say. Spielberg saw Soldier of Orange, was like, oh, shit, what is this? Then he brought Verhoeven to uh, America to audition for, I believe, Return of the Jedi? That would make sense, because it was Um, early 80s, and and um, Lynch was up for it. Yeah, Yeah. they were coming in. I would love to see a David Lynch Return of the Jedi. 
Well, yeah. yeah offered it to him. Well, like Lynch. Well, well, the way Lynch tells that story is that he didn't even know why he was there and was like, I New York's would all have like this. red eyes. There'd be like time dilation. But they. Um, <laughs> man, there's. Uh, <laughs> the story goes is that Spielberg loved Soldier of Orange, brought Verhoeven over. They were real impressed with him. He was going to direct. I believe it's Return of the Jedi. And then they saw Spetters. And Spetters involves, if you've never seen it, there's a gang rape scene in it where somebody is raped to the point of changing their own sexuality, let's say, or it's implied. And Verhoeven was thus disinvited (laughs) from coming to America for at least a little while because like, then he had to go and make... Uh, what is it? The Fourth Man, the the kind of Hitchcockian movie with um, where the two guys again with a lot of you know not even gay subtext, but just two guys, one woman. It's very much like a spider's web type thing. If you've never seen Fourth Man, another great Fairhoven. His early stuff is a lot. I mean, I've watched all his American films, but like his early, I think I've seen. In Flesh and Blood was not a line. Was that American? Yeah, it's Orion. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen that. And then everything after. It's technically his American debut. Isn't Robocop considered his, like, debut? Yeah, his, debut? like, major debut because, like, Flesh and Blood had, like, a ton of problems and stuff. Yeah. And, the behind like, the scenes of Robocop is so fun. I. Man, sorry. That's a whole other episode, but I could talk about Robocop for eight hours. Yeah. Like, Ver- <laughs> and also just Verhoeven in general, like, is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. But. To answer your question, I would probably go with Soldier of Orange or Turkish Delight. I just like young Rutger mm. a whole lot. Um, that's my total hipster answer of like, I like the earlier Before it was stuff. cool. Uh, but like, yeah. I also, I love Blade Runner. I love fucking Nighthawks. I love, like, I I don't love Split Second the way you do, but he's great in it. <laughs> he's cool. Um like Blind Fury, all that shit. Like if Rutger Hauer showed up in your, I'd like Hobo with a shotgun. Like if he showed up in your movie, it at least made that Fantastic. much better. You know, Cody, what's your answer? Favorite? Oh, it, well, so I, I have to very much mirror your answer in that. Uh, it's definitely going to be Blade Runner at the beginning. I mean, just the, the, the knowledge that he improvised that, that that closing statement, that closing uh, tears and rain speech, yeah, exactly. monologue. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. It's just beautiful. Like the fact that he could just you know call it. I've I've seen battle stars, battleships burning off the shoulder of Orion. Of yeah, yeah. Like it's fucking beautiful. And then he goes, sea he, rings glittering uh, near the Tannhauser gate. gates. Yeah, like <laughs> what the fuck are you even talking about? He but goes damn. out and he just slowly shuts down and closes down in the rain. Time to die. It's Yeah. I mean that movie. I haven't watched that movie in years. Fucking beautiful. Like, that was that, my That light. is the most Shakespearean thing I've ever seen on film that wasn't written by Shakespeare in my entire life. That was that film that, like, in high school, college, and then even grad school was like, they're like, you can pick a film to write about. I'm like, I'll pick Blade Runner. And I just like, <laughs> like, through my old life, I just have like, what about Blade Runner? Has anybody written about that yet? Yeah, I just, no, I just have like no. different eras of me from like 17 to like 30 where I was writing. On no Blade intellectuals Runner. have ever had similar thoughts. I was like, uh, it's about the human condition. What? <laughs> so it honestly that fuck out. 
it, it would be that, and then be followed up with uh, the Hitcher, and then it would be honorable mention, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, he's great in that. It's a, and, and it's also worth mentioning that like the Hitcher ranks. Like that, it's that, one of that's his. That's exactly why I put it right yeah, behind Blade like, Runner. I'm, well, no, that's what I'm saying. Like you, you bring up a good point. It's like this is one of the best ones. Like he's, like, he's swinging for the fences and he is connecting fucking yeah. solid. He's, he's knocking the ball like forty feet behind the fence. Yeah, like, I don't even watch baseball. It's great. Yeah, he's he's on a different level. He's in a different level in this movie. He's just because I mean, you think about like Blade Runner and like it's very like he's separated from. He's in like a couple scenes with uh, with Deckard with uh, Harrison Ford. It's just a separate thing. But this one is just like this. He and Tom, he and C. Thomas Howell are so connected the whole time. Well, well and that's what I was, I was going to bounce off of you and say something is that like you can watch movies where guys give great performances and they feel like they're in a different movie and other people are operating on like a different level. But what's interesting about Ryder is that. He's there with Jim Halsey yep. the whole time. And like even though He shows up know, in the diner, he's sitting at the table. Well, it's not only that, it's just the idea of like see Thomas Howell is never gonna be the same level of performer as Rucker Hauer. It's like it's just oh, never okay, gonna happen. And like Rucker Hauer is doing work in this fucking movie, but like it never feels like he's just risen completely above and is operating in his own film while like Thomas, like see Thomas Howell is trying to keep up. It's just like he hits that exact correct pitch. That's both intimidating while keeping you grounded within this movie. It's, it's really something to behold. Absolutely. Next question. All right. So we're uh, to the question of the weapons of choice. We have a few of them in this film. We have a revolver, which Rector Howard wields, that can shoot down helicopters. We have the shotgun, which uh, the boy takes out Howard with at the end. And we also have the switchblade, which Howard uses to threaten the boy whilst displaying homosexuality. I mean, I'm going to just take from Jacob. It's that it's that spaz, baby. Like, it's so... <laughs> and you're probably with me. It, it, yeah. There's something about there's it. There's no other answer to this I, I think the greatest... the but greatest the revolver to take down the helicopter. The greatest weapon in cinematic history is the shotgun. I don't think... It, just for me, a film has a shotgun in it. The boomstick in Army of Darkness, like, it just becomes this thing where... Director Howard used it. I'm a wildness. I'm a big machine gun fan. Oh, I am too. I mean, I'm not. He used it negating against, the machine gun. He but. used the shotgun against the against the truck at the end. He's firing at the windshield because driving it towards him. He can't take him down, and then he nails him down with the uh, vehicle. So wouldn't that negate the shotgun as an effective weapon? No, no. I, I just think shotguns forever. I mean, the, the the style of that it sticks out. Like it's this very like you were saying. It's a specific. It's like it's real cinematic. It's the shotgun versus a shotgun, right? I think like you watch films like like I think like. Um, Michael Douglas's revolver at the end of the game is like the revolver. It's the silver beast, yeah. you know, and it's it just sticks out. Like you said, it's Snub very nose in that one. Yeah, too? and it's another forty-five, a big, you know, yeah. big beast of a gun, um, and it's like very, very similar to that. It's like this is the gun, and this is the gun he's going to kill Ryder with. Um, yeah, I, just, I love that shit. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> it's so cool. Okay. So, or I didn't mean to take your answer. I think we're in agreement. Yeah, I don't need to give an answer. Yeah. It's, it's the spaz. I would have gone with the, the the handgun that took down a helicopter. Yeah, the but handgun that's just could because a helicopter. Of a, no, that's just because of a narrative inconsistency. Like, that, no. The, it's the spaz. 
You're incorrect. The correct answer is spaz. Yeah, fine. You have failed this test. <laughs> All right. Um, so we're down to the uh, the tropes of our questions. What do you double feature with this with, Jacob? <clears throat> um, I have an odd one. Is I would go with Crash from 1996. Um, the Matt Dillon? No. No. Not the shit one, the Cronenberg oh. one. Oh, oh okay. Good one. All right, all right, all right, all right. Glad yeah. I clarified. <laughs> no, the other crash came out in like 2008? I don't know. Eight? It was 2004 because it was the Oscars for 2005. Yeah, I was going to say, wow. that was like and, right after I was at a, at And it was school. the best year of the Oscars because it was like Brokeback Mountain, like Good Night and Good Luck, and Munich, and then... <laughs> Crash and yeah. Crash One and Crash One. <laughs> I, I actually like. I actually liked Good Night and Good Luck. Oh no, the, the, oh, that movie's great. Oh, and, and then Capote's the fifth. Every other film was great and deserving. Capote is not great. Uh, it's my least favorite of his films, but it's better than Crash. I think. I don't know. Um, but anyway, I didn't mean to. Cut. I think Capote is one of those movies that has a great central performance, and the rest is painfully boring. <laughs> but anyway, that's a different episode. Um... No, Crash, 1996, uh, David Cronenberg. Martin and I were talking a little bit before we, uh, we recorded um, that I watched the 4K transfer that just came out. I have, uh, like the Hitcher, I have another German import of that one um, that Criterion is putting out in a few weeks here. So by the time you're listening to this, you can just go buy the Criterion disc. I mean, you should... For my money, it's not only the most Cronenberg film, it's possibly the greatest lesson in auteurist uh, amalgamation that you can kind of take from a movie in terms of like Cronenberg found the exact right material to adapt, used his kind of family of creative collaborators from, you know, Howard Shore doing that haunting weird guitar score that just sounds like notes bouncing off of the hood of like a car to Carol Spear who's like always been his production designer to this cast of like James Spader at the height of his like cold creepy sexuality Deborah Carr Unger as his partner as yeah just this unknowable alien kind of sexiness Elias Cotillas as the cult uh, leader Vaughn, who stages famous car crashes to get a sexual charge, but that's where Holly Hunter, the, Holly Hunter, um, who gets her wound fucked by James Spader. Um, but what is it, this movie? Oh no, that's Rosanna Arquette who gets her yeah. leg wound fucked by James Spader. Um, this is. Have you never seen this? What is it? David Cronenberg's Crash? No. It's it'll about fuck you up. Man, it, it makes a lot of sense. But it's a no. movie about uh James Spader plays Does a he fuck her wound and, and then stick a videotape into no, it? No, 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 no. Um it's James Spader plays a filmmaker named Ballard. It's based on a novel by, <laughs> by JG Ballard. Ballard, who gets into a horrible car accident and becomes embroiled in essentially a cabal of people who become aroused by car crashes. They get a sexual release out of it, but there's a quote from the movie. So it's a kind of flatliners. Well, not really. It's doing something totally 
like again, it's it's you've never seen a movie quite like this. It could have only come from one person at gotcha. the exact time in his career that he made it. It's very cold. It's very clinical, but they meet Vaughn, who's like a hospital attendant who takes care of Spader after his uh, his wreck, and they kind of get embroiled in this, in this cabal of people that Vaughn leads to where they stage famous car crashes. Like you meet him to where he hey, James James he, re, he redoes the James Dean. Okay, uh, little spider. bastard yeah. uh, car crash to where it kills him with actual Hollywood stuntmen, so that people can like watch it. But it becomes this idea of how and Vaughn kind of verbalizes it at one point to where the car crash is seen as a fertilizing event as opposed to a destructive one. And it's the whole idea of how these destructive things can happen in your life and change you into somebody else, which has kind of been at the basis of both uh, the Hitcher and Highwaymen. Um, this might actually double better with Highwaymen because mm-hmm. of Confiori's entire character being disabled, the, the car becoming a shell. Bernamitra's whole history. She says that the whole conversation yeah, about she being her damaged. family is yeah. destroyed like by a car crash when she's a uh, little girl that she survives. Uh, Confiori like keeps the car, and there's even that line that Vaughn says at one point. You know, I'd love to die in a car that has a hist- a rich history, um, and it's it, it it both celebrates Cronenberg's deepest fascinations which is sex death mortality um the but while also kind of lampooning like he's taking the piss out of his own work a little bit because there's a moment where vaughn goes uh, you know ballard asks him oh what are you fascinated by he goes well the reshaping of the human body through modern technology and later you know, uh, they talk about it to, to where they survive a car crash together and he sees people dead and everything. And, you know, it, it Vaughn rechanges his, his ethos, let's say. And yeah, Ballard goes, well, what about, you know, reshaping of the human body through modern technology? He goes, oh, well, that's just a crude sci-fi concept. But in a lot of ways, that's, that's Cronenberg throwing his own yeah. work out the window a little bit and saying, well, this is me almost auto-critiquing in a way, um, in the same way that I feel like Harmon is slightly critiquing himself with, like, Highwaymen and, like, linking back to his own work and stuff. It's just, there's a real elliptical thing happening with Crash that I love and I get sucked into every time. And, like, again, I was telling Martin before we recorded, like, I watched crash at like midnight and got sleepy during like the second half still finished it but then just rewatched it the next day just watched it twice in 24 hours because i think not only is it one of my favorite movies but it's like one of the true masterpieces of of cinema in general like it's it's great if you've never seen it watch it immediately that's a bold statement for it um, for me, this honestly, like I always spend, a, I try to spend a lot of time thinking about what the double feature is going to be when we're doing these episodes. This was the hardest, not because I couldn't think of something because I thought of like five different movies. Um, I feel you. And just, I love 
car-based thrillers. I love road trip-based thrillers. Um, I'm not, I think I know what you're... We talked before what your mind is based. I want to say that, but yeah. you know, I had such ideas as Breakdown with Kurt Russell, which I think great movie is is fucking awesome. Jonathan Mostow. If you did feel that one of the things that I said was the thing that no, you I have feel, a different then. one. No, I okay. no, no. Right. but I but I that was one of them. I don't want to jump on yours, but no, I'm just I've, I've got two. So okay, well, you know, Joy, Joyride was another one we talked about, which I think is a great like, written by J.J. Abrams. It, oh, I didn't know that, and. One of the, my favorite things he's done. I love that movie. It's a great thriller. It's funny. Um, great might be a stretch. I, I love I love Joyride, but it's um, it's a good ride for what it is. A good Joyride. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I also was thinking of Drive Angry with uh, Nicholas uh, Cage. Cage. The movie rules. <laughs> yeah, and I saw that with my best buddy, uh, my buddy Mike, who's writing one of our. Uh, our articles for uh, Last Wait, Dragon. Okay, so I have to ask you a serious question. Like, do you take Drive Angry as like an actual film? Yeah, yeah, I, it's awesome. Yeah, I, so I think great. that. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's not trying to be art house, but and I was watching literally the making of it last night. I don't know, getting prepped for this, and you know, Lucier and and his filmmaking buddies making this film like for fifty million dollars, which was. Huge after their My Bloody Valentine remake. Um, is this... Wait, this is after My Bloody Valentine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it was their follow-up. Because that was a decent hit. Uh, yeah, it did. I made $100 million on like 15, and they gave them yeah. 50 for this one. And right. My Bloody Valentine, which also like is awesome. It's a lot of fun. And I love the original too, but they... That was but my, but my final answer, and it came to me when I was watching the making of Drive Angry, was... Race with the Devil. Oh, this movie's awesome. And so Race with the Devil is Warren Oates and Peter Fonda, and they're on a, a cross-country road trip with their, their wives, I believe. Yeah, and they're their in, families. And they're in an RV, and they are just traveling cross-country, having a good time. But Warren Oates and Peter Fonda are being Warren Oates and Peter Fonda. Like, they're not acting. They're just, like, being themselves, and it's wonderful. So they park. They you know are spending the night, and Warren Oates and Peter Fonda go out. And they're looking across this this uh, this valley, and they see a satanic sacrifice, and they are seen back by the satanic you know uh, cult, who then chases them for the next hour of the fucking movie, and it is a car chase satanist movie, on and I watched it with an I, RV with an RV, and that's what Drive Angry took from all the all the action scenes of Drive Angry with RV is from they said their inspiration was uh, Race with the Devil. That movie, I saw it. I had heard it was cool, and I rented it with my really good friends on my birthday in like oh man, like 2011. It's like nine years ago, and they all came over to my house. We watched Race of the Devil, and it was just like all of us like, what are we? What are we watching? This is absolutely <laughs> out of control, <laughs> and it's awesome because like Warren Warren Oates is kind of like Rucker Howard. If he's in a movie, I'm gonna like it. There's there's not a, there's no exception. Fair like play. and there's no exception. Um, so I would say that also that same feeling of when you're on the road, you're not safe. Like there's there like cops are around, they can't help you. Right. It is it is the it is I think the road is like the last vestige of the Wild West. You know, um, and it was also directed by I think Jack Starrett. 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 Sorry, who was made uh, all those exploitation biker movies. Made a lot of great movies and also was one of my favorite characters in First Blood. That's true. Um, and so I have been following down. He made the film with um, 
Frederick Forrest and Stacey Keach, the brothers. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, that's my pick. That's my, like, my lineup pick. Well, and Jack Starrett made a lot of those Bill Smith movies in the 60s and 70s. Like, he made uh, Run, Angel, Run, The Losers, which if you've never seen fucking Losers, it's like a biker Vietnam film. Oh, my God. Oh, no, I've never seen that. so great. Uh, Cleopatra Jones, which is essentially, like, the... Herma- the yeah. The black... <laughs> Uh, equivalent her, to Shaft, or like it, the her mother really believed in Shaft, um, and I mean like Hollywood man, like just oh man, Jack Starrett made a lot of great like what we know now as like driving movies. He also yeah. was in Blazing Saddles. Yeah, that's true. As, well, he was uh, an actor yeah, first. Yeah, he, all that. Yep. Uh, Cody, what's your answer? Uh, so I had two initially, as we we talked about on our, our viewing night. Um, one of which was Joyride, which we just referenced. Uh, Lily, Lily Sobieski, and then was that Paul Walker? Yeah. Paul Walker and, C's and then Steve Zahn. Was he the guy in that thing you do? Yeah, Steve Zahn. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they were brothers, and they, that all plays out. Um, I thought that was and a good Ted fit. Levine as the voice of um, oh, that's Ted Rusty Levine? Nail, Rusty Nail, <laughs> Candy Candy, candy Cane. That was so good. That that that, that was a great uh, early thousands. Um, I know what you did last summer. Yep. Kind of yeah, like, it's right in the peak of that stuff. In yeah. in the vein of yeah, for sure. So my second one was worst part of that movie is Lily. Get, can we talk about Joyride yeah. for a second? Yeah, for sure. Like let's just talk about it because I she's the worst part. I, she's the worst oh! part. She's beautiful, but she's terrible. Me and my wife she just looks watched, like young Meryl Streep. Me and my watch. Yeah. Me and my wife just watched last night uh, Glass House. Ugh. Oh, it's so bad it's with Stellan Skarsgård. So bad. Terrible. It is so I saw bad. The theater. But that's yeah. where I'm kind of. I did too, actually. God. But now, this was a time a when like they had... were trying to make Lily Sobieski a thing. Yeah, yeah, but like, she was—it didn't work. She had her affect is like, "Hey, I'm Lily Sobieski." Well, yeah. no, her this, affect was like, "Hey, I look like Helen." Hey, I look like Helen Hunt. Did you yeah, get the static? Just yeah, there? a little bit. Helen Hunt and like uh, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, exactly. A little bit, but yeah, it's so weird. There's an early scene because I just rewatched this recently too. Which there's one? an er- Joyride. Okay, is that there's an early scene. Where like Paul Walker and her are talking on the phone, and it's supposed to be like this sweet scene, like oh, I can't wait to see you, I can't wait to see you, and they talk about nothing. I'm like, why do these people love each other? Like outside of just wanting to fuck, because one looks. Because let's be real, R.I.P. Paul Walker. Yeah, not the Dude best died. fucking actor, but in the world. a but but a beautiful man, good looking guy, a total vacuum of charisma. He he really you know. I that's the reason it took me years to get on board with Fast and the Furious. Yeah, because I was like, you know, if it wasn't for Sweet Baby Vin, like, well, you Vin, know. Vin is like, I mean, like, then you get to part five, which Vin it gets is great. Not the selling point of Fast and the Furious. Yes, he is. Yeah, for the earliest part of the series, he one hundred percent is. You know, we're getting, who else? Yeah, who else is is carrying Fast and the Furious one four? four. He with talks him. like he's just learned language and he's walking Dude, through sand to speak. You're talking post pitch black badass fucking movie. Pitch black was Saving great. Private Ryan. Yep. Pitch Saving Private Ryan, which you don't recognize him in. And Pitch Black directed by my hairstylist cousin. Um you know what's a great Vin Diesel movie? Um Man Apart. No. 
That's not a good <laughs> Please don't see uh, Bloodshot. No, the one with Sydney that Sydney Lumet directed. Oh yeah, uh, Find oh. Me Guilty. Yeah, that was good. He he puts he puts himself on. Trial, well, he was a filmmaker first. I yeah, that's how that's that how Spielberg is. found him. Skins was his film, right? Yeah. No, no, yeah. no. He uh, Spielberg found him because he kept he kept writing Spielberg letters. Same thing he wanted to but be he had, but he films. had been in the festival circuit also. Yeah, he sent him a short film. It's either it's skins or faces or I think he, it was skins because he because he faces, he yeah, sold was, light bulbs before he was an actor. Yeah, but but anyway, no. And he's I, got a twin brother. No, Cody's just like rattling off. What's your <laughs> besides Joyride? What's your what's your other pick? Besides Joyride, Vin Diesel's favorite oh, um, food is carrots. <laughs> Carrots with Miss twin Lippy's brothers. Miss car is green. <laughs> His favorite carrots are the, the, the carrot chargers. <laughs> Wait, what's your double feature, dickhead? Uh, my dickhead double feature is Jeepers Creepers. That's a good one. Especially the first one with the truck. You got a truck. You, know, you got a truck is following you. It's busting you around. You 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 got a mystery about what's happening. You have an on um, a uh, omnipresent force, and you also have a police station scene in which the all the cops get taken out. Yeah. Also, very homoerotic. Yeah, that for too. not great reasons. Yeah, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But <laughs> filmmaker, not mean, a, not an awesome person. <laughs> Some I mean, would even say a pederast. All, you might say a convicted pedophile. All <laughs> directors want to be compared to other great directors. They just don't necessarily want to be compared to Woody Allen. Yeah, yeah. or Brian Singer. Yeah. But Jeepers Creepers is good. I saw that in the theaters. I it's like a, part two as well. I saw it's part it's two in the theaters. Movie. Although part two, oh man, this is a whole other thing. But like part two totally leans it, into all the bad stuff about Victor oh, Salva. Oh no, it changes the whole tone. But it's all guys with their shirts off on top. Like there's, there's uh, a sunbathing scene. I'm like, brutal. what is going on? Yeah, it's totally a guy. on top of a bus. Yep. Like, wh- why is there a deck built on top of a school bus? 110 percent a guy indulging his bad fantasies that he's already been convicted for on screen. Ugh. Good Ray Wise performance, I guess. Great. And, Another... and, a, and a good weapon. A good Quint. Oh, you Can know what? Him? That actually might... That's an interesting duology because that's almost like the Hitcher and Highwaymen of, you know, Come just by. in one franchise because yeah. you have the Ahab character yep. taking uh, revenge for his, his son. Door, his his son. son was taken into the cornfield. Of course it's his son. Yeah. So... Um, and then in the first one is just the regular like highway massacre movie, but yeah, we should move away from Jeepers Creepers. Yeah. Next, qu- <laughs> next question. Look, we, we 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 can separate art from artist. No, we can't. Not not on this one. Not here. All right. Okay, All right. because it's just look, it's different. It's it's why I honestly like you bring up Woody Allen earlier as like a joke, but it's honestly why I struggle with watching Woody Allen movies is that it's one thing to be accused or even convicted of a crime and be allowed to make art again and not indulge that shit. Not only make art, but make tons of money off of art. Well, take all that out of it, but it's just like art is a privilege to make, you know, like, and if you're a convicted... And the privilege is that money is backing you. Well, yes, Cody. My point is more like, even if, you're, if, even if your movies aren't making money, like it's a privilege to come back and do that after being, acu- in Woody Allen's case, accused. He was not convicted or anything. You can't say that. 
However, his movies still often revolve around his very creepy fascinations with younger women. and His, his situation was very similar to Louis C.K.'s, who had a one-off of that, who after, you know... Louis C.K., who idolized him and basically modeled his own filmmaking style. And, and his film, Come to Daddy, what was it called? Um, Come to Daddy's other film. I Love You, Daddy. I Love You, Daddy. But it was the same thing where it was like... If that, if, if, before you found out what was going on with Louis C.K. was doing very well at festivals, then it came out what he's really like, and it's like, nope. Because nope. you just see the complete mirroring effect. Of I still what, have an Oscar screener of that movie oh, like God. around somewhere. That's how I saw it. Because I got the screener, and then all that shit came out, and it was like, are these collector's items now? So because I'm, the movie was pulled from yeah, I'm unaware of this. Was there a... Was there a Louis C.K. film it was directed by... He directed it. No, he directed it. We're saying he... I'm saying in a very similar situation where the film he made was about a younger woman with an older man. But it's okay. Very, it's very sexually weird. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And it would be funny and like maybe maybe kitschy. I thought you were saying Woody Allen directed no. a film with Louis C.K. Yeah. No, it's no, no, no. directed in the style of like, say, a Manhattan. Yeah. Like it's okay. very stark black and white. It's very New York. It's very with, character driven. Yeah. And, gotcha. Without yeah. the real world context you're like oh this is an interesting film where he's dealing with some stuff then you're like oh this is what he's really like and malkovich is basically playing woody allen and yeah that. it's real so, weird but um, um yeah but, so let's move on yeah this. let's let's bounce well my point is more you know salva and it's why i struggle with not only allen but polanski yeah. is another one because you can watch certain movies the ghost writer which is a movie I think is a borderline masterpiece, but I also wonder how much Polanski identifies with Brosnan's yeah. Tony Blair stand-in as this persecuted guy, and uh, and again the woman is the root of all evil in that movie, and it's just there's a lot of stuff that you watch and you're like, ah oh, man, is this apologetics for like or even rage about your legitimate crimes and, and trial and What's fleeing it? the country. But like, it's the same thing with Salva. I, I, I struggle with Salva because it's like, or Salva, I guess we should say is like, he's a guy who's convicted of literal rape, yeah. filmed it, and then continued to make movies that fetishize boys who are supposed to be underage with their shirts off. That's rough. And I don't need to watch that. If I can. Yeah. I think it's clear and cut. The answer is a no. What? Yeah. That you shouldn't have to watch that. Yeah, no. It's just, I, it's, you know. Next anyway, question. Next question. So, this film, could you, should you, would you remake it today? Jacob. I think it's another one that. The question is sort of irrelevant yeah. because it's like, well, it like we just we just brought up Joyride and there's Duel and there's uh, the car with with uh, James Brolin and there's a million road movies. Um, it's that movie with Keith <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland and Reese Witherspoon, Freeway. 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 Um, so like, I like that movie. could you? Sure. Should you? Sure. 
Would you? Why not? You don't even have to remake this. It's just you pick up a serial killer. It could just be a different movie. They have remade it. It's yeah. The Hitcher with Sean Bean, which isn't good. So, I mean, maybe you could make a movie like this. I don't know. It's a moot question, I think. Martin? Yeah, my quick answer is no. I, I mean, I think that it has been remade. Not well. Um, again, I love any chance to see a thriller on the road, especially like in the West. But like Jacob was saying, there's 10, 30, 100 other examples out there of like really good shit, even, yeah. even since then. So it's a weird thing where I don't think there's enough. Again, it's a very like <laughs> – there's moments in this film where not a lot is happening, and it's all about tone. It's all about – Robert Harmon is a director. It's about Eric Red's screenwriting. It's about Rucker Hauer as an on-screen energy. That is, is again, I keep saying this every time we talk, but is, is, is it lightning in a bottle or not? I think this film is lightning in a bottle. And yes. I think that, again, I want to see many more films like this. I don't want to see a remake of The Hitcher and and blaspheme what is already kind of a perfect film. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to agree with you. I, I, I don't want to see this remade. I, I think it's individual. It. I don't think it can be remade. It's Rutger Hauer. It's it's all the tones that are in it. There, there's no possible way you could recapture the same magic that they already did on film. I think you can take similar ideas and try to recreate them in, in a new light, with, with a new plot, with a new whatever you want to do. You you can definitely draw from this as inspiration. But if you try to remake it, you're going to fail. I would be interested in seeing Eric Red tackle this material again <laughs> now <laughs> given his since we're on the let's say subject Whoa. or tangent of problematic and, yeah. uh, creators like eric red you know wrote this movie wrote near dark wrote body parts and then had a psychotic break and killed people with his car by driving it through like a storefront window or something like real fucked up shit. And then basically tried to kill himself all on scene by cutting his own throat with a piece of shard of like a shard of broken glass. Did he not? What? Did he survive that? No, he's alive. Oh, okay. He's made movies since then. He could be listening to this podcast as we speak. Yeah. I mean, love to have you. Yeah. You want to come <laughs> on and talk? We probably don't anymore now, but like, I'd be interested in watching him confront these demons because, like, what if this was stuff that was kind of just bubbling around in his mind and he had blackouts and a complete psychotic break? I don't know. Um, real quick, I, we have, I guess, like one more question left. But, you know, we haven't talked a lot about Near Dark, <laughs> which is kind of weird that we've, you know... And I don't I know if we have to, but it's interesting that well, like, in this shorter period of time... I think we're going to cover that next week with our pick, too. Right. So, but I want to just say really quick that I think it's interesting. I, I I, had forgotten when we were watching this film that Eric Red had written Near Dark. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, my pick is going to be Near Dark. Back to back. Yeah. Like, the, apocry- the apocryphal uh, legend, if I could pronounce the word, <laughs> is that Eric Red wrote this after an encounter with a hitchhiker that creeped him out from a, a drive from New York to Austin, Texas. And then he lit while he was living in Austin, Texas, he like banged the script out in like a couple weeks um, immediately after that experience. So who knows? 
again, you're dealing with a guy who had a psychotic break. So, but then he, it also explains why he wrote, you know, a vampire Western in the middle of nowhere. I just, you know, I just want to say that I think it's, I love the themes of both these films of, I keep saying these back roads where you're not safe, these back roads, you take one wrong turn or, or you're just out there on your own. And it's like, you are, you are separated from civilization, separated from authority or anyone who can help you. And I think near dark, they both have this kind of night world narrative of you enter this night world of either John Ryder or the vampire clan of near dark. And well, near dark is like pure, Outlaw shit. Well, it's it's that Cody, but it's also just very much like they like, especially um, Jesse, the Lance Henderson character, is as old as the Civil War, so he was a Wild West highwayman <laughs> with like, you know, he was living after that. And well, yeah, because there's that direct line where he goes, "Well, how old are you?" He goes, "Well, let's put it this way, I, I fought, fought for, for the, the South. South." You know, and, <laughs> and it's fucking great. I mean, like that movie's amazing but it's that same thing where it's like this kind of runoff of you know old america hasn't changed it's still there it's still terrifying um and i just, I just don't I mean, we'll talk about it next week with our pick but i don't want to forget about it with just eric red for all his problems like these two scripts are fucking great well in his later scripts would be great too because i mean you have body parts which is a great yeah. movie that he directed to blue steel the other movie he made with with cat how dare you? I know. We'll talk about that next His week. His slasher with a gun. Oh, Let's put... Just rewatched. Nah, man. That's crazy. That movie's great. Anyway, next question. Last question. Very last question. Is this movie a certified face melter? Martin. Yeah. I'm going to say yes. Um, I think it's there's moments where it's slow burn. It's, it's probably about 20 minutes too long. We said it before. But the fact that, you know, you're experiencing it the first time and then your second time when you were sober, um, you know. But you were saying that you watched it again to get the whole experience, right? And um, my me watching it as a younger guy with my, you know, and be like, it blew me away then. It's fucking hardcore and the tone, like you said, the tone never lets up. You're constantly in the grip of of this killer. You know, you're with you're with Jim, stuck with him. So I would say absolutely. Jacob, face melter. I know. I'm thinking about it. Um, it's not an easy answer, but yes, I'm going to go with yes. For a few reasons. One, I saw this movie incredibly early in life, um, and it still stuck with me. I watched it on every version that you had, like could. I watched it on TV. I watched it on tape. I watched it on DVD, and now I've watched it on Blu-ray. I've watched it projected. I've watched it on thirty-five millimeter. Like it's, and it's, it's blown me away in various ways uh, throughout the years. Um, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, I can't believe this is a movie this horrifying and weird. And like, who's this, this blonde haired guy with these fucking eyes. And why is he talking about digging people's eyes out with fucking switchblades and shit? And then, you know, you go to uh, film school years later and then you come back and rewatch it and you go, 
oh my god, how the fuck was he flipping cars and blowing up helicopters and like on a movie that's not a big budgeted film? Like he was just Robert Harmon's doing work and just destroying stuff. And then you also, you know, admire just John Seal like shooting it the way that he shoots it and the fact that like yeah you could remake this but like the hitcher is always going to be perhaps the ultimate road horror movie so yeah Cody 100% face melter yes is this our second full one third 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 watching this hard target battle royale and then now this watching this on the side of Vulcan Video, on a flimsy fold-up chair, with you know speakers that are set up, projecting this sped up, uh, set up, and uh, munching down on some Taco Bell, whilst being completely captivated by every moment of this film because of the plot and the tone and the cinematography and the, for lack of a better term, fourth act of it all. Sure. Jacob, after the film was done, I came up to you and said, thank you for showing this to me. Yeah. I, I mean, thought you it was drunk, incredible. But, and it was like two in the morning. So what? My feelings then reflect my feelings now. This I, is an incredible film. I think it's a, a, a staple in cinematography, and I think it should be worshipped. It's interesting that you said, like, real quick, you know, that Face Melter is all-star stand-in sometimes. Like, is this a pure secret handshake film i think it completely is like it is a film that 100 i think back to when how well it's still hard to see it, it's so, it, yeah and it's like yeah it's on streaming and things like that my brother remember like i'd be in that age where he's like is it I, on streaming it's on hbo max oh okay because they own it's their film oh uh, okay and my brother remember saying i remember i remember when he said hey i got a movie i think you're gonna like and it's not the kind of easy like hey let's watch die hard or what which i love but it's like not one of those like just let's watch something kind of easy and fun it's like I saw this movie. I think you're gonna like it. I think this is one of those movies. I'm gonna fuck your shit up. <laughs> Wait, but you're right. It's it's fucking. I'm gonna change your reality. Wait, it's that in the moment, the, the killing of 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 Nash. You know, things like that, where the film is like constantly yep, yep. taking le- say taking left through turns. all of these things that we know about you. That is your brother, your John Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> I want to have him on here to speak for himself at some point. There you go. Um, but um, no, he has, he has been, I mean, a lot of the films like hard target earlier films I've picked have because, because of our relationship and him, the two of us. So I think that you've mentioned that a time or two. Yeah. That we have this close relationship where he has introduced great movies to me. Heat, you know, yeah. like some of my favorite films have been through him. So, um, and I love the GI Joe. Ernest saves Halloween. Uh, Ernest Scared Stupid. That was me by my own. I found that on my own. <laughs> Ernest goes to jail. That's what's up. <laughs> All right. So we are in 100% agreement. Yes. Certified, Certified face melter. Face Three melter! out of 10. We're at 30% now. So sweet. Anyway, that wraps up 1986's The Hitcher, spy number 10 on the Secret Handshake podcast. Cody, thank you. Thank Martin, you. Martin, thank fuck you. you. Um, also to you, sir. <laughs> well, are we going to tell people what we're doing next week? Nope. We kind of alluded to it a little bit. Let's let's save it. Um, okay. Just, just think that um, there is one major crew member on Near Dark who worked on the next film. Yep, 100%. So we'll see you next week for Secret Handshake. 